Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. Welcome everybody again. Thanks for coming along today. We've got Associate Professor Miranda Forsyth from the Australian National University from Regnet uh, talking about understanding sorcery accusation related violence in PNG. Thank you very much for inviting me to come and to talk with you. The invitation came at a very good time because we've finished doing the data collection stage of a multi-year research project that I've been doing in collaboration with colleagues at Divine Word University in Medang in Papua New Guinea and at the National Research Institute in PNG. And I can go more into the methods that we've used later on, but it's basically been a mixed method, so we've done both qualitative and quantitative research, primarily in four provinces, in Papua New Guinea, in Enga, in Bougainville, in the National Capital District and in Jiwaka. So I wanted to start with two stories of survivors of sorcery accusation-related violence, or we use the acronym SARV because sorcery accusation-related violence is a bit of a mouthful. The first is the story of... Now, I don't have a photo, but I do have a photo of his kitchen, which, as you can see, is in a very picturesque position in the area of Bougainville called Tinputs. And he was living in this area in 2015, when an old man became sick in the village and they invited someone called a glass man or a diviner to come and to say, well, what was wrong with this man? And the glass man said that there'd been somebody who had put some kind of poison on him. So poison is often used as a synonym for magic, black magic, nakaimas in, in Vanuatu, and that they were regularly heating up this poison and that was what was causing his sickness. And so people started to look around for well, what is you know, regularly heating up and they alighted upon the copra house, which is a place where people use to heat up and dry coconut in order to make it into copra that this gentleman had. And so they said suspicion started going out that it was him who was the, the person responsible. And so when he heard about this, he got very, very concerned because these kind of rumours can be absolutely destroying for people's reputations. And so he decided to get on the front foot and he went to the community leaders and said, I want to have a community mediation. I want everyone to come together and let me argue that there is no evidence that it's me that's doing that. And so he did that and ultimately was successful. Everybody, the, the things that seemed to be quite convincing was that he didn't look like the type of person who would do that sort of thing. So sorcerers are imagined to be unkempt, dirty kind of people. And he was like, I'm not like that. And then he also made the argument, well, maybe somebody had put that magic, that poison, in his copper hut. And he was inadvertently heating it up regularly, but it certainly wasn't him who had put it there beforehand. And so there was an agreement that, yes, it wasn't clear, and those who had made that accusation paid some compensation towards him. But then he realised that he was still in a bit of doubt. His reputation was still under a bit of a cloud. He threw himself into action, and he said, I decided to show out that I was not a poison man, so I tried to act as a leader. I tried to get in touch with the community leaders, and I went inside the elections. So I started to talk with people, and they realised then that I'm not that kind of person. And so when I interviewed him four years later, he was the ward councillor, so he'd really become one of the community leaders. 
He was still very concerned about sorcerers as being a problem in the area, but also he was very concerned about false accusations and was really trying to do a lot of education to stop that from happening. And he was very pleased that he had banned glass men from ever entering his village. So that's one story. The second story is of who hasn't been as lucky, so that's there on the left. She lives now in, and she comes from Enga province up in the highlands, which is a place where sorcery accusation-related violence is a new phenomenon. So in some parts of Papua New Guinea, like Chimbu, it's been there for a very long time. But in Enga, there were ideas about spirits that could cause people to be jealous, but the idea of what is now called a sanguma in Enga is quite new. So this narrative is that women in particular are sanguma and they eat the hearts of other people, often consuming them together in a group. This narrative, as far as we can tell, entered into Enga province in around 2010. And in 2016, there was an accusation against three women in a neighbouring village. One of the women who was accused was distantly related to her. The three women were tortured and that was filmed on mobile phones and that footage was then quite widely shared and there was a lot of discussion about the fact that that this had occurred. At that time, was successfully selling food at the roadside market and she was more successful than the other women. She had quite a good business strategy whereby she would give little bits of free food to people and so that meant that she had more customers and so there was a bit of jealousy of her. And then some of the women who were in the market next to her started to say that money was going missing and that was the one who was stealing that money through the use of sorcery. It started this idea that she was the one who was a sanguma. So this continued until there was a situation when a catechist died and then also a young boy fell down in what later turned out to be his first ever epilepsy attack. And when that occurred, then a group of men predominantly, some of whom were related, came and took her. They tied her up, they blindfolded her, they stripped her naked and then they burnt her with heated machetes all over her body before eventually releasing her when word came that the boy had got up again. And she was then rescued by some people who took her to a nearby hospital where she stayed for a month. Then she was put into the care of this gentleman here who really decided that he had been doing some advocacy about the problems of SAV and this was an an opportunity for him to show leadership. So he took her into his own house kept her for a while, she then went back home, that there were problems, she then went to a safe house in Garoka for some time. Ever since then she's led a very precarious life where there's been attempts at reconciliation but there's also been that real threat of further accusation against her. My aim in telling these two stories really was to complicate the narrative of sorcery accusation related violence that one often hears through the media where it's presented as a form of gender-based violence as you can see it's men also who are accused as an unusual or single event and I'll show the way in which it's actually a systemic form of violence it's one that's based on ancient traditions and I think you can start to see that in fact 
in many ways these are new traditions that are new narratives that are coming into different places in Papua New Guinea and also one that always ends in extreme violence and a lot of our research has shown that on the contrary a lot of these cases um, don't end in extreme violence there are a whole lot of ways to prevent that from happening. I like to think of SAV really as a complex phenomenon that can be understood as a bushfire. So we start first of all with a conducive landscape and thinking about what are the different features of that landscape I'll go into in a minute. And then there are various things that give rise to increasing threat levels. So exactly the same way as we might have you know, a build-up of undergrowth, heated temperatures then there is a trigger event, so ignition. Then there is the way in which that starts off as a very small accusation that then becomes a bigger and bigger event, getting out of control and leading towards a lot of damage and destruction, and then finally having continuing post-event trauma. So I'm going to go through that cycle in the rest of this presentation but the point that I want to make, and I'll make again at the end, is that at every point in this cycle, there is an opportunity for an intervention. And we've got a lot of data about the different ways in which those interventions occur. And the ones right at the start are by far the most successful in terms of just heading off this cycle of violence before it really takes hold. So we think about you know, the control burns, putting in the fire breaks, having the bushfire prevention plans. Those are all really important, as well as, of course, thinking about, well, how do you put the fire out if it really does get out of control? I'm going to show two photos during this presentation that are of South, so they do involve violence. Nobody is identifiable. And we've had a lot of discussions in our team about whether or not it's appropriate to show those kind of photos. And our conclusion is that that is the best way to communicate the scale of what occurs and that it is necessary for people to understand exactly what's going on in a way that you can't without that visual image. So that's the position that we've reached. So as you can see, this is a photo of some people who have been tied up and are awaiting torture in the highlands of Papua New Guinea. So thinking about then, people often say, well, what are the roots of SAV? And there's a debate often in both the literature and in public commentary on the issue about whether or not it is a cultural or religious issue or whether or not it's a socio-economic issue. So I've read really convincing arguments about both of those, people who have done economic analyses showing how at periods of drought then a community will make a decision to sacrifice the least profitable member of their communities. But it seems from our data that actually it's both. You need to take into account the cultural, religious considerations as well as the socio-economic ones. And so in terms of the cultural factors, we talk about this concept that we call worldview pluralism. And that's the idea that people within Papua New Guinea and people, to be honest, in many parts of the world have a number of different worldviews. And those worldviews can coexist quite comfortably. And one of those worldviews that is quite prevalent in Papua New Guinea is one in which the spirit world intervenes in the physical world through human agency. And that means that when people suffer misfortune, then they are seen as being victims 
of aggression by a human agent, by a sorcerer. So if there is sickness, if there is death, then the question becomes, well, who has caused that? We call these things causal stories. That story about the causation of the misfortune is very much the connection between a trigger event and then a particular individual being accused and then acted upon in some way. However, it's not enough to just think about these cultural factors because there are many parts of the world where that worldview is very prevalent and you don't have Saab. Thinking again of Vanuatu, that's absolutely there, but the cases of Saab are very small. So it's also important to think about the socioeconomic factors, and there are a range of these. High precarity of life, growing or new forms of inequality, and particularly inexplicable inequality. Why is my neighbour doing better than me? Fragile resilience within communities and within families. Low social cohesion. Factionalism at different scales. I'm working on some research with Nicole Haley about how the sorcery plays out in terms of elections in Papua New Guinea. So it's at the sort of the, the national level. High levels of uncertainty, and this is a factor that comes across clearly throughout anthropological and historical accounts of witch hunts, and that is that at periods of uncertainty, that is when there tends to be recourse to witch hunting, and then also the normalisation of violence, which unfortunately is prevalent across Papua New Guinea. What I've just described is sort of like the landscape, but then on that landscape you have more proximate factors that start to compound to increase the threat level of SARV occurring. And we can think about those in terms of being individual factors, such as jealousy, desire for others' land or goods or sexual partner, and revenge. Then we can also think in terms of community factors, tribal fights, land disputes, previous grievances, ethnic tensions, particularly amongst communities that are living in urban areas, such as Ley or in Port Moresby, and then also the community, the particular communities and the surrounding communities' history of SARV. As I explained in the case of the fact that there had been an incident of SARV in a neighbouring community was almost something that sparked the accusation in her community. People were on high alert. There is a Sanguma around somewhere, so that's something else that raises the threat levels, like a spot fire that's coming out of the fire. Just to put some figures around those hypotheses, we found that in 82% of the cases that we looked at, they involved a pre-existing conflict or a tension between the person who was accused and the accuser. And a land dispute made up 35% of those cases. Jealousy over money and goods made up about 26% of those cases. And then there was a variety of, of other factors as well. So you've got the building up of the threat levels and then there is an incident that ignites what has occurred. And that trigger event occurs in nearly 99% of cases that we documented. There was an identifiable incident that occurred that really triggered the accusation. In 50% of those cases it was death, sickness in 37%, economic misfortune in 6%. And those trigger events then get 
linked to individuals through these causal narratives, through the story that, oh yes, that misfortune was caused by this type of person. In anger, 46% of our cases involve somebody being accused of taking someone's heart. And then in Bougainville, it was 77% they were accused of poisoning someone. So these very distinctive narratives that are associated with very distinctive geographical areas say, okay, we need to think about this particular misfortune in terms of a human agent who's been responsible for doing it through the use of sorcery, of magic, of witchcraft. There's a whole lot of other vernacular terms that are used that are, of course, more appropriate. We gloss them all as sorcery or witchcraft, but there are problems with that. So then the question is, who do these causal stories get attached to? And this is where we conceptualise the class of people who are being accused as really as victims in waiting. Because in any given community, even before there's been a trigger event, you're likely to be able to say, the people, those sort of people are the sort of people who are likely to be the targets of a sorcery accusation. But that varies very much from community to community. In some places it's men. Bougainville, for example, it's almost entirely men. In some places it's almost entirely women, so that's in Enga. In Jiwaka and in Port Moresby, it's about 50-50. And we've done an overview of looking at reports of SAV in the newspapers for 20 years and found about 50% reported men and 50% reported women. So there's this really sort of wide variation in the characteristics. The majority of people accused are late middle age, so between 41 and 60, which, although to me that doesn't seem to be that old, in Papua New Guinea is a young society, so being you know 60-year-old is pretty old there. So it is more the middle age to the elderly who are being accused, but there are also children who are being accused, and I've just written a paper about that as a really concerning phenomenon. It seems to be mostly people who are of the same socioeconomic status as the rest of the community who are accused, but sometimes it is political leaders, the well-educated, the successful business people who are being accused. Sometimes it is the very, very marginalised, odd, epileptic, possibly person suffering from dementia who is accused. Two factors that seem to be consistent across the country are that it's likely that the accuser is related in some way to the accused, often by blood, sometimes just through marriage or being part of the same tribe. And so that resonates with findings in Africa where they call sorcery accusations the dark side of kinship. Another factor that is consistent is that if somebody has been previously accused, then they are more likely to be accused again. So again, if we're thinking about who goes in our category of victims in waiting, those people who have been accused just are always sitting there, and that's part of the insidious problem of SAV in that you can never get rid of it. The next step we talk about is this idea of what happens to fan the flames and I've put this into three different sub-steps, really moving from suspicion to the crystallisation of the accusation through a searching out of truth, of evidence, of proof, 
And that is absolutely critical then to this third stage, which is the claiming of moral legitimacy in order to advance some kind of an action. So to get some group response against the person who's been accused of sorcery. Interestingly, looking at the literature, the historical literature as well about witch hunts, this idea of the trial, of finding absolutely sort of conclusive evidence, was also both important for enabling it to occur and for stopping witch hunts from occurring. There's also been an interesting anthropological study in one part of Papua New Guinea where a community that removed witchcraft seances was able to really significantly reduce the amount of salve that occurred in their community. So I think that this part of the process of the search for the truth is a really critical part of the cycle. And the people who help to do that crystallisation, authority figures who are seen as having authority in relation to sorcery. So we asked one question, who do you go and ask advice from? And most of the time it wasn't police officers and village court officers. It was we go to the glass man, often the glass man from outside, so people far away are seen to have authority, sometimes also to pastors, particularly the more evangelical pastors who do prayer houses and they call themselves prayer warriors. They will help to, in some ways they will say, well, we're cleansing the person of the sort of the evil spirits, but at the same time as well that is that is giving that kind of proof that the person in fact has got that sorcery inside of them. Then in terms of the moral legitimacy and the catalyzing of the group response, one of the things that characterizes SAV is that it is often a very public form of violence and it's carried out by groups. In 34% of cases that we documented, the groups were larger than 20 and in 40% there were groups between 5 and 20. So really significant numbers there, mostly younger men, but not exclusively. And in 60% of cases, some members of the group affected by drugs and alcohol. But again, that isn't always the case. So then turning on to what kind of destruction and damage can occur, some of the quick statistics, the cases that we documented, so if you remember that we looked only in four provinces and our data is still likely to be a very significant underestimation because you cannot document every single case. We had local recorders in the different provinces who were keeping their ears out for cases and when they heard about them then they were writing them down but understandably they had to be very careful themselves about the extent to which they were asking questions. They documented 1,039 accusation incidents over that period of time involving 1,553 accused people. And the reason that there are more accused people than incidents is because often in an incident there will be a number of people who will be accused. So in about a third of those cases, there was physical violence or property damage. So in two-thirds of those cases, there wasn't. And I think that that's also an important factor that we need to draw attention to. Of these victims, 65 were killed, 86 suffered permanent injury, and 141 suffered other really serious harm, such as burning, cutting, tying, or being forced into water. Overall, 93 cases involved torture, 
20 lasted several days and 10 for a week or longer. And that kind of torture is often public or it's a combination of public and private. So if somebody will be brought out, put into the middle of the community, as you can see in this photo here, and then taken away at night time. And that has a significant impact on the community, that kind of performance of violence that occurs there. You can see there a child watching that. People take photos of it. They share it on Facebook and so forth. And so when we're thinking about the type of harm that occurs, we really need to think about the individual accused, their children, because this has significant both psychological impacts on them but also real disruptions to their lives. Often, as we'll see in a minute, the accused does not go back to living in their community, so they're displaced. And then also children are often stigmatised by this sort of notion that children uh, inherit or can carry the sorcery of their parents. And so we call this intergenerational stigma that is passed down. And then obviously the entire community is impacted and often there are cases where as a result of an accusation of sorcery, entire clans are sort of are forced out of a particular area and have to live for many, many years not on their own lands. I like to think of it a little bit like the harm. You drop a pebble and it ripples out. So one accusation just can have such far-reaching implications. In terms of post-event trauma, the survivors report ongoing social isolation and stigma, as we saw in case and in the other case where you have to really fight very hard to not be continually impacted. Continuing threats against the victim, forced relocation, loss of livelihood and property. There's widespread impunity for perpetrators. So on average, there's about eight to nine successful prosecutions a year for SAV. And again, that's not very widely known. And people like to think that there's never any successful prosecutions. But that's not true. There are successful prosecutions and the judges do impose really significant sentences. So it's generally life imprisonment. But of course, the number that finally get through is very small compared to the amount of cases that are actually occurring. And we've done a bit of an analysis, a gender analysis of those cases as well. And it seems to be predominantly when it's men who are the victims that they are successful in having those cases prosecuted. It's far more likely that there will be other forms of justice, such as compensation payments. And there's interesting responses by, for example, hybrid courts like the OMS courts in Enger, who are requiring really large payments of compensation to be made by one clan against another in order to make people stop, think, are you really going to do this because it's going to have significant consequences for the entire clan. And rehabilitation requires a lot of time and networks of support in order to get one survivor back into a community that can take years and years of mediation and of supporting them living somewhere else. And I've been really privileged to have spoken with a lot of people who have been doing that work and it's extraordinary the commitment that they put into doing it but also the amount of resources that are required and also the real 
I suppose, the networking that is needed. So often the successful reintegrations that we've seen have involved community leaders, pastors, village court magistrates, police, all working together to say, leave this person alone. They're now part of the community. And unless you have all of those factors together, it's very difficult to make any reintegration stick. I'm not going to go through too many interventions, but to say that there are, going back to that cycle again, there are possible interventions in every part of the cycle. And we've just started analysing the interventions that occur once an accusation has been made, but before the violence really takes off. And a hugely encouraging finding really is that in almost three quarters of accusations, then attempts were made to manage the accusation in a non-violent way and that they were successful in preventing violence. Not always, but they had a significant impact on preventing that violence. And the attempts were most likely to be made by village or local leaders and family members rather than state officials, although there was a role played by state officials, particularly village court magistrates. The most successful strategies that were used were arguing that there is no proof of sorcery in that particular case. So again, going back to that importance of proof and also the idea that in terms of intervention, arguing that sorcery doesn't exist, everybody just needs to be educated into a, a, you know, a, sort of a Western scientific mindset, that isn't going to help. But raising doubt as to whether or not in this case that is the only explanation or whether or not there are other explanations seems to be a far more useful way to go. And another useful strategy was that violence is against the law. I had started off being quite sceptical about the impact that the law might have in this space, but the research showed that in fact that was a significant factor and that People were interested in knowing what does the law provide and there wasn't a lot of pushback against the law saying sorcery accusation related violence is a crime. The other factors that were significant were strong leadership against violence, that family members say no to sorcery accusations and that's particularly important at funerals. So if you've got a family member who's able to stand up at a funeral and say we know there are these rumours but we're not going down that path. That seems to be very successful. And also a fear of police intervention. Finally, just to put what is occurring in Papua New Guinea into a global context, I've been working with a group of international advocates, activists, scholars against the problem of what is being termed harmful practices, accusations of witchcraft and ritual attacks across the world. And hopefully there will be some movement on the Human Rights Council in relation to this issue soon. That's something that we've been working towards for a while. And as part of that, we did a desk-based study using the reports on the internet of a variety of harmful practices. We did try to work out which ones are credible reports, so there was a bit of secondary checking of them. And in doing that, we documented over 20,000 victims of these harmful practices in the last decade occurring across 60 countries. And of course, there are many countries where there just is simply no data on this. You'll notice that in the UK, there's a lot of these cases, and that's because 
in the UK, there's been an awareness that children are being accused in diasporic communities predominantly, and the police suddenly realise, well, we'd actually need to put some language around this, we need to start counting it. That hasn't occurred in other countries in Europe, but I'd be very hesitant to say that's because it's not happening in those other countries in Europe. To finish, I suppose, a photo of some of the regrowth of the trees that were burnt in the South Coast fires that we had last year. And I do think that although this is a really grim topic, what I've learned is that there are ways to overcome it and that the initiatives that local people are doing and the networks that they're forming are definitely the ways forward and they need much more support than they've been getting to date. For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts.